Hello and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast. Today, we continue our Congressional Contender series with Mike DeSillis, who's one of your Democratic primary candidates in New York's 11th District, which covers Staten Island, Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bath Beach, and parts of Gravesend and Bensonhurst. In this series, we're giving you an opportunity to sit down and really explore the topics that are important to the candidates and how they fit in with progressive values. So without further ado, here's Mike. So, Mike Stills, thanks so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, well, my name is Mike DeSillis. I'm a native Staten Islander. I was born and raised there. I know that was an issue of discussion <laughs> on one of the previous podcasts. I hope it's not a liability to me at this point to have spent so much time in the district. But uh, I was born and raised in Staten Island. I currently live in Bay Ridge. I've been in Bay Ridge for about 10 years. And this is an interesting thing because when I go to Staten Island, having been born and raised there, people don't think I'm a Staten Islander. I'm fourth generation on the Staten Island side. My mother was born there. My father was born on the Gravesend side of the district back in the late 30s over in Coney Island Avenue, Avenue X, Avenue Y, around there. I've spent my entire life in service, and I started when I was a kid volunteering at hospitals, and it wasn't so much driven by any real purpose other than this is kind of how I'm built. Right. You know, when you're going to school, there's not many opportunities for you to do something. I was very interested in medicine, and I always wanted to be a physician. So I started with the hospitals. I worked at St. Vincent's, which is now Rumsey in the North Shore of Staten Island. And in college, I also volunteered at a hospital. I was trying to be pre-med at some point as one of yeah. my majors. I was actually a music major. What instrument? Uh, piano, performance, and Ooh. composition is what I actually got my degree in. Oh, wow. So, and we can talk about that later. We're going to have a jam session sooner <laughs> or later. <laughs> so, uh, during college, I had a friend who had worked in EMS, and he was going to get his EMT certificate, and he said, you know what, you should do this. This is a good job. It's mm. a good career. And I said, okay, I'll do it. So, while I was an undergrad, I got my EMT, and I started working on an ambulance on a volunteer basis. And when I graduated, I had become a paramedic at nighttime, and I started working for an ambulance firm. Went to Kalamazoo mm-hmm. College in Michigan. So I worked at Life EMS Ambulance in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I was on the ambulance for eight years. I was a field training officer. I got specializations in neonatal medicine because the hospital I worked in had the only NICU unit in Southwest Michigan. And so they had a special bus oh. to take care of the hmm. NICU babies and bring them back. So I did that, did field training. And then for the last three years, I was a nationally certified SWAT medic. So I trained with them for three years. Warrants or hostage, barricaded gunmen, things like that. So the city there was kind of interesting because you had what you have in New York. You had a downtown, which mm-hmm. is more urban. And then you also had cornfields. <laughs> so, right, right. So you really did run the gambit. And sometimes our transport times would be upwards of 20 minutes, half hour. Oh, wow. So we got to actually do a lot of medicine. I liked that. I liked the autonomy. Yeah. And it was a terrific job. It paid terribly. <laughs> and it was something that you could not make a career out of. And when I was working with the SWAT wow. team, I looked at law enforcement as something that would be a better choice for me. I also wanted to get out of the Midwest. So I came back to Staten <laughs> Island and I did this in 2001, in January of 21. Hmm. So I applied to get on the NYPD. And while I was waiting, unfortunately, we were attacked on 9-11. And I spent the evening of 9-11 to 9-12 working the forward treatment and triage center and American Express Building 3 across from the mm, first oh, tower. Yeah. So I was, I was at ground zero for about 14, 15 hours, left the next morning at about seven in the morning. Being there and being physically present at ground zero obviously had a, had a profound effect. I mean, it had a profound effect on everybody who was down there. I was very fortunate and very lucky that the time that I spent down there was fairly limited. I was on a volunteer basis. But the police officers, all our firefighters and everybody else who had to work down there for months Many of them succumbed to fatal illness. And so it was really, I mean, it was a life-altering experience for everybody. And it was for me as well. Uh, but all it did was really kind of firm my resolve. I started my tour in the police department up in the 2-3 precinct in East Harlem. Spent four years there. Two years I was on foot walking a beat. A lot of cops don't like doing that. Really? I was part of Operation Impact, which was a, a brand new initiative to have rookie cops go stand on corners where there's lots of crime. But what I found was that having spent so much time on the street, 
I got to know everybody on those two blocks. And it wasn't just the people on there. I got to know the business owners and then the people and the kids who came out of school because my shift started right about the time they got out. So I got to talk to them and I started learning their names and is your homework done? And they, <laughs> they would help their parents as translators. Spanish Harlem had a large undocumented immigrant community. So I got to know all of them as well. Finding different methods to actually partner with the community in order to make it safer and to bridge that gap between the community and the police department. It's always been a hot topic, how we train our police, how we equip our police, whether or not we're using militarization, and what is being taught to the police recruits when they're in academy as opposed to what's kind of being done as an afterthought. I didn't even mention the last six years I was at the NYPD, I was in the legal bureau. Mm. I had gone to law school at nighttime while I was going there. Whoa. And so I was an overachiever here. <laughs> I kind of, yeah, I, I was a civil litigation attorney for the department as well as a police officer for the last six years. Uh, while I was working in the police department, I was injured. I was in a police car. I wasn't driving my police car, but uh, I was hit by another police car. <laughs> and it injured my right shoulder. It damaged it. And after surgery and rehab, uh, they retired me on disability. And while I'll never play tennis, it's workable and I can go on with my life. <laughs> a month after I retired, uh, I had a nine-month-old uh, baby and all my son, Parker. Uh, my wife, who was 30 at the time, got diagnosed with breast cancer. So for pretty much the next year and a half, I spent at home with my wife taking care of our nine-month-old mm -hmm. and helping my wife through, at the time, multiple surgeries and chemotherapy and also her recovery. She's cancer-free. But it wasn't just difficult because of the medical tragedy. It was also difficult because of the cost and the related bureaucracy that went with that. I have insurance. She had insurance. You still have to deal with a whole host of both co-pays and other associated costs you don't really think about such as her loss of pay at work. And we had a baby. And then you look at the cost of, well, I'm at the hospital for three days in a row. So I have to eat out. I have yeah. to park my car somewhere. When you think about the cost of healthcare, you forget about the entire familial cost. When she recovered, I took a step back. I'm still a licensed attorney in New York, and I was interested in potentially doing some immigration work. I was going to be working pro bono on the DAPA DACA, oh, okay. but that was blocked while ah, I was in training yeah. for that. So both my parents are retired uh, teachers from the Board of Education. My aunt was a teacher, my grandmother. I was the only one in my family, apparently, who hadn't taught. And I had held off for as long as I could. They have the Teaching Fellows Program in the city. The Teaching Fellows focuses on both schools that are at risk, at need, and also in special education, hmm. and specifically District 75 schools, which are the citywide school district that deals with students who have moderate to severe disabilities. And I said, you know what, this is a population I'm familiar with, both in medicine, in the community, in the street. And so I joined the Teaching Fellows, and I have been teaching in D75 schools for three years now. I wow. teach a middle school class of nonverbal autistic students between 11 and 13. And then you decided to run for Congress. And then in the end of... And we, we, one of the things that I've been approached with is that, okay, well, you know, you've done so many different things. You can't use just stick with one thing, and that's fair. But at the same time... <laughs> I've been trying to serve my community in order to make other people's lives better, you know, because it wasn't like a jack of all trades, master of none. I mastered the EMS. I loved that job. Um, I went as far as I possibly could without being able to have a career because of, yeah. probably because of the money. Well, um, how, how much did that make? This is back in 93. It was 8.28 an hour. And at the end of my career in 2000, it was 11.50 an hour. So. I just, I just nearly spit tea all over everything. Like, like the thought that that's what we're paying people who are literally saving lives on the street. To be fair, locally in the city, they do pay more depending on the annual service. If you're working for the city, mm -hmm. you do have better benefits. Personally speaking, as a public safety provider, we don't pay our public safety providers nearly enough in order to also keep them here because of the cost of living in the city. It's not just enough just to pay the rent or to be able to, okay, I can afford food this week. There has to be some quality of life that you should expect if you have a job and you're working 40 hours a week or more, which is what most of us do, yeah. 
that you should expect that you should be able to take care of yourself, your family, and that you're not going to feel guilty if you go out to eat once or that you're able to buy something or go on a vacation or pay off the medical bills that you have backing up. These are the mm-hmm. things that affects everybody here in this district and here in the city. And it's something that's really important. There seems to be a very strong narrative thread through, you know, this job took you to this job, this job took you to that job. I planned on being on the police department for my 20 years and then mm. doing something afterwards. Being retired early was something that kind of came as a surprise to me. And kind of forced me also to, as I said, take a step back and say, okay, now what can I do now? I felt that, especially when I was practicing in the courtroom, I was a civil litigator, I still felt removed from the people that I like to help. I like being in the street. That's the kind of person I am. Mm-hmm. I've spent most of my life in people's communities, you know, at their homes, on the street corners. This is kind of who I am. And even when I'm in the, the classroom now, it gets me out and it gets me connected. And I, I like that. Running for Congress, this is just an absolute continuation of the narrative that I've had, but doing it on a much larger scale. Oh, and it doesn't sound like we're going to have a hard time talking you into town halls if you get there. No, yeah. no, <laughs> not a problem at all. I know. In fact, one of the things that's helped me, especially when I was a police officer, it wasn't having so much partners in the precinct. It was having partners in the community mm-hmm. and being able to talk to people about what is really going on and what really concerns them. So doing this, no, it's absolutely no different. Something I've really wanted to talk with you about, because I think you're probably at the forefront of this, which is a lot of work in different languages. Um, well, I mean, we have a diverse district on both sides of the water, and both in Staten Island and in Brooklyn. I mean, you talk about Staten Island not being as diverse, but it is one in five people in Staten Island are now an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Very large Sri Lankan population, Liberian population, Russian population, Polish. It's, that's on that side. Over here, we have the same thing. We have the Arabic, Russian, very large Asian population. So I looked at past websites of people who had tried to reach out to different communities. And typically, it was only campaign websites that addressed the Spanish community. So they have a section, you know, Espanol, and you click it, and it would be like, my immigration policy, and that's it. And they didn't address uh-huh. any of the other issues. And now we have 125,000 Latinos in the district. And I'm pretty sure that, yes, immigration is a very important topic. I work with La Comena. I work with people from Dream Action Coalition. I was with Make the Road when they went and confronted Dan Donovan. I'm Fantastic. I'm, I we'll we'll put the video in the show notes. <laughs> but you know what? One of the things I find being and talking with this group so much is that they care about all of the issues. It's not just immigration. And so for me personally, looking at the district, I chose the two populations of over 100,000, which was the Asian, predominantly Chinese, and then the Latino population. So my website's in three languages. English, Spanish, and Chinese, the whole website, everything from community relations to healthcare to LGBTQ rights, anything, because why wouldn't they want to know that from me? How far out of your way do you feel like you had to go to make that a thing? Uh, Not hard at all. There you Uh, go. No excuses, people. um, You know, took a day, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't find, I mean, my my wife is Dominican. She came from the Dominican Republic when she was uh, 16. And we speak both Spanish and English at the house. My son's bilingual took a day or two to go over my website and I asked her very nicely. And then I check it against somebody else to make sure it's accurate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for the Chinese translation, same thing. I work with a teacher who was kind enough to sit with me. We went through line by line because the translations are not direct when written in simplified Chinese and also checked it for accuracy. And that was it. It did not take long to get both up there. And further on, I have no problem printing brochures or anything else in any of the different languages for smaller populations, Russian or Arabic or anything else. Mm -hmm. They deserve to have access to the same information that everybody else does. They live here. And they function here just like everybody else does. I mean, as I said, I came from a family of educators. Um, I got my degree from Hunter exactly 90 years after my grandmother got her degree from Hunter in teaching. Because I was very familiar with people with autism spectrum disorders, both as a police officer and also when I was working as a paramedic, specifically working in District 75 schools appealed to me. I have a very small class. I have five kids in my class and I've got five adults in my class. How you approach teaching and structure your class and manage behaviors is completely and totally different. But it's really rewarding, and it's a terrific population to get involved with. 
One of the things I like about D75 schools is that you don't get placed there. You have to request it. You want D75 schools? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. And then you, <laughs> you, you go ahead and you do that because there are less restrictive environments. And that's the whole goal is that you take a kid who is whatever individual education program they have, and you want to make sure that they're in the least restrictive environment possible. Now, District 75 is self-contained because these kids generally can't be mainstream, but the goal is to still take as many as you can and still move them back into the mainstream. Uh, there was just a case about what is required to be taught on the IEP, whether or not it's the mm. de minimis or whether or not it has to be some type of a challenging academic IEP that actually gets them moving up. The court actually surprisingly, 8-0 said, no, it has to be more than de minimis. It can't just be something where you just have the same goals every year and just keep shuffling them along. You have mm. to have high expectations. You have to push these kids on a variety of different subjects in whatever way that it can be. And the end goal for a lot of the kids is that they gain independence on some level. And that they can also uh, access something vocationally, that they can work. It's the same goals that we have. My wife teaches bilingual elementary in Sunset Park. And what she does and what I do, I would say some of it's similar because there is a general approach to education and some of it has nothing to do with each other. And so it's not for everybody. Progress is not measured on a daily basis. And sometimes it's really measured on a monthly or even a yearly basis when you start seeing some type of, of change, either academically or cognitively or behaviorally. But at the same time, I love it. And frankly, and this is from somebody who was on a SWAT team, this is the hardest job I've ever had. Wow. It really is. I have never been more challenged. And I go into work early every day so that I can prep my room and get my materials ready. And you're working on the weekends on the different materials for them and on different behavioral assessments or you're working on their IEPs. So it's a lot of extra work um, that goes into it, but it's a lot of mental work that goes with it as well. And obviously this year we've seen what happened with Betsy DeVos uh, being placed uh. Secretary of Education. And it makes me want to pull my hair out. Because just like every other division, we've got somebody in charge who doesn't like the actual office that they're in charge of and wants to eliminate it. I believe in public education. I believe it is the best chance for equality and equity in this country. Mm -hmm. I am firmly against vouchers for both private schools, and I don't like charter schools either. Mm -hmm. I think they take up space. I think they take up money, and they're not held to the same accountable standards mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. public schools are. We were having a conversation the other day about overcrowding in District 43, which Bay Ridge and Gravesend and Bensonhurst, we don't have a single school operating under capacity. A lot of people are, um, oh, a charter would just be more efficient for maybe the certain kids that it serves, but a lot of them have very low classroom sizes. They don't accept many people. They restrict people. They shunt other people There's that can't be successful to get in, I think. Yeah. But then once they get in, because they have such strict disciplinary codes, that they mm -hmm. basically just weed out the ones. One of the problems yeah. is that they're responsible for over 70% of the suspensions in the school system. Really? Oh. Yeah. Their rates of disciplinary action are way higher than public school, but that doesn't benefit kids. It doesn't benefit their education. The DC voucher school system, the kids who were using vouchers to go to private schools, their standardized scores were not just the same. They were lower than those who went to public school. And then if you look at Louisiana and uh, New Orleans after uh, Katrina, their public school system effectively went away. There's only 5% yeah. public school. It's all oh. charter schools now. And they're having the same type of, we're not showing any type of real progress here. Schools should never be for profit. Schools, hospitals, or, or prisons, this is something where it is best served by the state organizing and having some type of set curricula and set standards in place. I know we're actually changing out of Common Core in New York. Really? Over the next three years, we'll be phasing it out to next generation standards. But any type of standards I agree with in general, especially Common Core people, I mean, Dan Donovan rails against it all the time that he wants mm. to repeal every word of it without understanding that it's not federal law. It's frustrating because educators saw that you had a kid graduating high school in state A and in state B, and then they went together to university in state C, and they were not nearly at the same mm. level academically. One had much more college preparedness than the other, even though they both met their state's requirements for graduation right. from high schools. 
you have to have some uniform standard. Yeah, there has to be can, a metric somewhere. Somewhere. And, and I know we don't like having these standards because then you start teaching to tests and there's a balance to be had. This is part of statistics and this is also <laughs> yeah. part of money allocation. This is part of saying, okay, what's working, what's not? Yeah. If something's not working, then okay, I need to know through this metric so that I can say, okay, I need to either divert resources or change course because it's not working. This is something everybody on both sides of the water can get on board with. Mm -hmm. It's not a Brooklyn thing. It's not a Staten Island thing. There are people who actually argue against that, that whether or not public education is something we should be spending money on. I like to view this as part of the bargain that we make as Americans. There are certain fundamental things I think everybody should be entitled to, and that's just part of who we are. I am more of an FDR Democrat. I really Mm -hmm. believe that there is a floor that exists in this country under which nobody should fall. And when you start with a basic idea of that, and say, okay, where's that floor? And let's build up from there. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody's in a three-foot ditch, it's a lot less resources and manpower to get them out of it than if they're in a 20-foot ditch. Almost every single other topic is based on that theory. That's actually a great jumping off point for a lot of issues, actually. For example, how would you help people dealing with disabilities, for example? They're being attacked on multiple different fronts. Mm -hmm. They're being attacked when it comes to making Medicaid state block grants. Most of the kids in the Title I schools all receive Medicaid services. And it helps with medication. It helps them with any type of therapy that they need. And and I mean, that can be transformational for a kid who's got challenges. It makes the difference between some people, and not just talk about the autism, but just the disabled community in general. It makes the difference between independence and complete and total reliance on something else and the inability Mm -hmm. to contribute and be part of their community without getting enough resources as it is now. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about taking even more away. And this is a problem because, as I said, now the three-foot ditch for everybody is the floor is removed and everybody's free-falling. And the 1% got their tax break. Well, I guess that's what's important then. (laughs) (laughs) Since 2008 crash, what is it? 90% of real income gains went to the 1%. They already got the money. There has not been a rise in wages since then. There hasn't been a major reinvestment in anything. They want to pay their donors and they want corporations to pay even less for the rest of us. And that means all of us. That's damaging. It's damaging in every way because take a population, any population, disabled population, the elderly population, opioid addicts. When you start cutting all these things and all of these people start falling through the cracks, they don't disappear. They're Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. They go somewhere. You want to talk trickle down, there's going to be a lot of problems that are going to start becoming interconnected. And when you try to fix one of these problems, it's not as simple as saying one thing where I'm going to fix Medicaid because that's not it either. They're also attacking the ADA. It's never been a perfect law, but I mean, you have to have something in order to try to achieve some degree of equality or access in this country. And they're trying to change that now and try to make the onus on the person who has been aggrieved and disabled. If there's some issue with a building that does not have access, it's up to them to file complaints. And they're trying to make it. I really was racking my brain in this earlier. I couldn't figure out why. What's the point? It seems purposefully hateful mm-hmm. and damaging to specific populations, but for no financial purpose. It just seems to be a shifting of who's responsible for a certain... Yeah. One of the things we talked about, and I don't remember if it made it into the final edit of Alan's interview was this idea of disposable people Mm -hmm. and who's disposable and who's not disposable. And when you start looking at the cuts to Medicaid, cuts to education, cuts to you have to, or I at least have to start asking myself, like the people who are making these rules, who do they think is disposable? I've been fortunate that I have seen the value in everybody because all of the jobs I've had, it put me into multiple communities, communities that have money, communities that don't, people at their best and people at their worst, people at their bravest, people at their weakest, but essentially people at their most honest. And they're all valuable. People who are so removed from their own community, like Mm -hmm. people who are representing us in Congress who have never visited some parts of our community. Mm -hmm. I was completely taken aback during a a breakfast uh, he had where he was asked about what the most interesting thing about his district was. And he mentioned that they had a Chinese area. 
I, Where I have you been, wait, buddy? Wait, 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 he represents multiple large groups of immigrants. Sure. Was he just like glancing at Google Maps? Like, I'm in all the communities. I'm out all the time. I may have given somebody uh, their own language on my website, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going out and speaking with absolutely anybody else. Mm-hmm. No matter who you are, you actually have a voice. And one of the things, especially in Brooklyn, is that we don't feel like we have one. It's a Staten Island seat. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Staten Island guy gets it. Staten Island is the larger part of the district. And there are a lot of issues that both sides can relate to. We'll talk about education or healthcare. Yeah, everybody's on it. But all of a sudden, you start talking infrastructure and the conversation starts to diverge mm. because one has a transportation desert and one, as bad as it is, has an R train. It's not a zero-sum equation. You can take care of both sides of the bridge. Mm-hmm. I want to say any monkey can run for Congress and get elected. You see it in D.C. You see people who are just, <laughs> frankly, so mind-bogglingly stupid that they cannot understand the laws that they're supposedly sponsoring because they didn't write them because somebody else wrote them and they can't even read the own words that are just, on there. Just look at what just happened with the Senate. They passed a bill that effectively canceled out the tax breaks they were trying to give their donors. Yeah. The House didn't know that grad students were going to lose their tuition. It's a nightmare. I it's would a- love to see conservatives gain their competency back so I have Wouldn't something to argue against. Competency should probably be the hashtag on the front page of my website is what I'm trying <laughs> to get to is that you want somebody who understands the issues that are there, can articulate new ideas that says, this is what I'm going to do about it. And then when they actually get the job, because it's a job, and it's a job that actually entails a certain skill set that you need to do. You need to negotiate. You need to draft legislation. Mm -hmm. You're a legislator. (laughs) You're part of the legislative (laughs) branch. People kind of forget that. I'm the only attorney running. And while it's not a requirement, it's a big help to understand how to draft legislation and and understand the Constitution and have studied the Constitution. My my con law professor in law school was Nadine Strassen, who was the president Mm -hmm. of the ACLU. Well, I was a civil litigation attorney in the state civil Supreme Court and mostly in the administrative tribunals, which focuses on the city laws and regulations. Mm. It involved a lot of negotiation, involved a lot of discussion with opposing counsel. And so you needed to have negotiating skills. You needed to come with agreements with people. You needed to be able to present your case. It was an organization of ideas. And it was an adherence to the law. I'm kind of generalizing, but that's because that's what it really is. This is an important facet of what you do as a congressman. And it's something that it's good to have practice. It's really (laughs) bad to show up on your first day and really not write your own laws. I mean, I'm not expecting to write every word of everything, but at the same time, know what you're writing, know what you're introducing and know what you're co-sponsoring. Yeah. Don't sign off on things without knowing that because otherwise, again, what are you doing there? Yeah, we had significant problems with Donovan on like even understanding the basics of things that he had already passed. That was a fun moment at Fort Hamilton. Oh, yeah, I remember. And that's just one of the biggest problems that we have. And so we're looking for somebody who is responsive and who actually knows what they're doing. And that's, you know, hey, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) In case anyone was wondering. Yep. (laughs) We were going to talk a little bit about your union experience and just the the wide range of unions that you've been a part of. I'm a staunch union supporter. I'm third generation union. My grandfather was a dock worker before World War II and during World War II in the Todd shipyards. Both my parents are union, UFT, and I'm union. I was police benevolent association when I was a police officer, and I'm currently UFT as well. And one of the problems we're having nationally, and this is not a new problem, this has been going on for 30, 40 years, the decline of unions. We're seeing a decline in wages as a direct result of this. We're finding either right-to-work laws that are being promulgated, especially national right-to-work laws that are being pushed through now, the Protecting American Jobs Act, which is trying to take teeth out of the National Labor Relations Board by forcing people to arbitrate through federal courts, which costs more money and takes more time, or basically seeing an assault on organized labor overall. The middle class in this country was born out of the surge of unions that came out of the 1930s. Proved economically that if you give people in the middle money, it'll sustain an economy and these people will be able to purchase and do better generationally as they go forward. Mm -hmm. So all the different programs we had, like Social Security, was supposed to just be an adjunct to the pension that you were going to get from your job, be it a union or be it something else. Mm -hmm. 
And then in the 80s, we saw the rise of the 401k. It wasn't supposed to replace a pension, but mm-hmm. it wound up replacing pensions. Yeah. And so- a business isn't as strong as its owners, it's strong as its workers. So, I mean, like, how do we fix that? Now, one thing, but there's a few things. Rising the minimum wage is one. Mm-hmm. Making a $15 minimum wage, making a living wage. Some states have taken it upon themselves to do it. There isn't a decrease. There isn't a massive layoff. I think it was uh, Seattle or Washington. Mm-hmm. Or, and you see that there's a success in that and people have more disposable income and can spend money on the things that they need. And that goes right back into the economy. So that's part of the equation. The other part is not just fighting back, but expanding worker rights. We've been on the defense for about 30 years now. And unions, like a lot of other marginalized groups in this country, are then looking at the Democrats who they typically supported and they're saying, well, you're not doing anything for me. Mm-hmm. Republicans aren't doing anything for me. And they kind of shrug their shoulders and they wonder, well, what's going to happen? So laying some type of groundwork that expands the rights of the National Labor Relations Board. It's been there since 38. It's good. And it offers an opportunity across the board, whether or not you're union or not, for workers to have some type of recourse. Because one of the things we need in this country is greater worker protection when it comes to unfair hiring Mm -hmm. and firing practices, sex discrimination, disability discrimination. Right now, we're also moving to a more disposable worker economy. We see this with the local three strike that's going on right now with Spectrum. Spectrum bought Time Warner Cable knowing that Time Warner Cable is a union shop. And then for the first time in 40 years, refused to negotiate in good faith with them. While that's a specific strike with the 1,800 members of Local 3 here, it's really emblematic of what companies are trying to do. They're trying to change about how they deliver benefits to their workers because what they want are disposable workers. They don't want people they have to invest in for a long term. They don't want to pay health care out. They don't want to pay for any type of pension. They're trying to say, well, we're paying the same amount of money to you. Mm. In fact, we're giving you a bump. No. Even though I'm still employed at the same company, they're taking away the means by which I'm going to be financially viable because, God forbid, one of us gets sick. When I was growing up back in the day, you got a job and you kept that job. And that was it. You were lucky enough to get a job and you put your fedora on and you walked out the door with your briefcase and you were gone for 30 years. Uh, And then you had a pension at the end or some annuity or something. Yeah, That doesn't exist. We know it doesn't exist. We know that the job market's changed completely and that People don't keep jobs for very long. You keep it, then you move on to something completely different. Yeah. Some of it has to do with the fact that we wanted to change jobs because there was a dead end. And the other part has to do with the fact that the corporations view us all as temporary workers. Mm-hmm. And they know the mm. workforce is not going to be a stable thing. And so they don't want to allocate too many resources into training somebody, knowing they're not going to be there that long. They want to keep their key players at the top who are trained and who are paid well. And then the rest of the people are fairly disposable. None of the fixes for any of these things are overnight. There's no revolution happening. There is a slow, steady writing of the ship. Not just recognize some type of like financial gain, but also mentally start to recognize what we're owed in this country. Mm. What we actually should expect of each other and our government. You know, that's a really good point. And it just brings to mind the story my parents used to tell about my grandmother, who whenever anybody would bring up any kind of reform to Medicare or to Social Security, she would flip her lid. We paid for that. We were promised that. Don't you dare take that away from me. But there's not a lot of attention given to to the generation coming up behind. Well, I think that's also because the generation that's coming up behind hasn't been really promised much. Um, <laughs> that's true. You know, when, they don't expect when you think about like, true. I mean, I have to pay into a separate bank account to pay for my own insurance and medical costs. So there's no reason for me to stick around with one job for very long because mm-hmm. they aren't really even giving me anything of lasting value. I think we've we've genuinely let down the upcoming generations in terms of not giving them any reason to stick around and be loyal to the economy. (laughs) It's useful to be able to shuffle them around very quickly. It's useful, especially for economic modeling. That job market is mobile. If something happens, large corporations can move a headquarters around. We let corporations do way too much in general. We treat them like people under the law. Corporations will come to a state in New York and they'll say, oh, you know, I'd like to move into your state. I'm a big corporation, but I want tax breaks for 10 years. 
Otherwise, I'm not doing it. And then they're like, okay, we'll give you 10 years of tax breaks. So they move in, do it for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, they're like, well, you better extend that or I'm going to move yeah. out. And, I'm gonna, and then you're going to lose all those jobs. And you try explaining that. And then New York says, okay, I'm going to extend it even further. This happens to every state. There has to be at some point where we say, you know, no, you, you can't treat us like this because you're coming in. You're absolutely <laughs> fleecing us already. Then you're not paying your workers enough. We have, you know, people right now uh, bowing down before Amazon trying to yeah. get their headquarters. You know, so I hope I fit the criteria. Oh, please pick me. And yeah. they have a new warehouse. Uh, yeah, so already getting built out. In, yeah, well, and, in, and, in and that's not by any means livable, you know, sustainable. $12 an hour jobs. Part of the answer, again, is taking, okay, these jobs, some of them are necessary. You have to have warehouses if you're going to have a company like Amazon. But if you're looking at the district and you want to say, okay, what are we going to do to raise wages locally? You need to provide an infrastructure in Staten Island because it's kind of a transportation desert, some type of rail, some type of Wi-Fi access for the entire place to bring higher paying jobs here mm -hmm. so that you can actually start building your own district-based salary. We have the whole North Shore development on Staten Island going on. We get the outlet malls and the wheel. You're not talking salaries that are going to sustain. They're not careers, they're jobs. I'm looking for a high-flying career as a Ferris wheel operator. Oh, hell yeah. And there's two things you could do. One is make the community easier both ways. The other one is making it so people don't have to commute off the island in the first place. Exactly. By providing them the jobs on the island that can sustain them on the island so that you could have more of a community. It's a city of almost a half million people. And it, it is something unique to Staten Island that does need to be addressed specifically to them because this isn't something that Bay Ridge has got an issue with. But we'd love to help. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean... Come spend money in Staten Island. That's a... Yeah. We, we need some transportation to get over there first. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a liberal snowflake. I don't have a car. But <laughs> my brother just had a kid and they go out to Staten Island Zoo. That Bay Ridge is becoming like a really up and coming place for parents to move to raise their kids. And Staten Island's like a perfect place to take yeah. your kids. Yeah. I spend an inordinate amount of time. My parents are still there. And I grew up there and it was a great place to grow. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of things to do now. There's even more things to do now than when I grew up. Yeah. A lot more small business that are opening and not just in the North Shore, throughout the island. It's not like they're not trying. And that goes back to speak to what we were talking about with education is a community needs opportunity and a community mm -hmm. needs investment the same way that an individual does. The Staten Island has McKee High School which is a vocational high school. It basically teaches trades. There's no right or wrong path to the job market. There's just multiple on-ramps. It's based on different interests and ability and what you want to do. We have to recognize that with a 30% college graduate rate in the district, that there's a lot of other people who are not going to college who are nevertheless entering the job market and need to have some type of skills. I am a big proponent of vocational training in high schools. One of my best friends in Staten Island growing up went to McKee and learned sheet metal work while he was there. And he left nice. the high school and got an apprenticeship with Scarron Heating and he's been more gamefully and straight employed than I have ever been in my time. I mean, wow. he just, he learned a very valuable skill that absolutely sustained him and was interesting to him. Countrywide, the amount of people who are in the skilled trades are getting older. The average age is in the 50s. And so you need to replace these jobs. And these are good paying jobs. And these are jobs that will sustain you and are transferable, not just local, but this is nationwide. On the North Shore of Staten Island, you have all the tugboats that are docked. Repairing those engines, those electrical systems on those boats are all being done by out-of-state people. I believe it was Debbie Rose on the North Shore who helped to do this. They donated one of the engines from the tugboats to McKee, and they actually teach a class there on how to fix oh, the tugboat engines and work on the electrical systems. And so you can have people locally working on the things that are local. We have so many specialized high schools in the city. Yeah, uh, I went to a specialized high school. I went to LaGuardia. In eighth grade, you really don't know what it is you want to do, and you're forced mm -hmm. to almost make choices then and say, I want to go to Stuyvesant where my brother went, or I want to go to LaGuardia, or so my yeah. idea would also be to put a lot of these vocational programs really into a lot of the high schools and get the exposure to have the choice available to you once you go into your local community school. 
And they have some vocational training there that exposes you to that. And either that can shunt you if you want into greater training in a community college setting or whether or not it's something that is going to be sufficient when you leave to go get an apprenticeship somewhere. This is something we need to explore. We have to kind of change our attitude towards what is a better school or a better route. Well, if you get a liberal arts education, that's really good and it's necessary. It gives you a background. A lot of jobs, even the administrative (laughs) assistant positions require that you have a bachelor's, even though it's not germane to the job and it's not relevant to the job. But they require you to have one to show that you've had some initiative. And what kind of BS is that? There is not one that is better. Because I know a lot of people who have college degrees who are just dumb as a box of rocks and unemployed. They can quote Milton to me, but they can't, you know. And that extends to how we define worker qualifications, too. And resumes by themselves are some of the worst made creations on the planet because it's not (laughs) indicative or indication of your ability. A lot of times they're used to discriminate. Also, coming up with new and inventive ways to actually evaluate employees is so important. I was reading recently when it came specifically to people with autism who were trying to get jobs. Mm. The job interview itself wasn't something they were really capable of doing. But they changed how they evaluate them to actually literally put them in the job for the day. You evaluate, you look and you see what their actual physical skills are and how they're actually functioning because not everybody interviews well. Really smart people interview poorly. And so none of these things are a good indicator of anybody's either value, their worth, their ability. And I'd like to see all this change. It's not just one or two people saying, it's it's a great idea. It's systemic. You have to have some type of systemic change to say, okay, we need to hire people differently. And this benefits corporations and employers as well. This isn't something that would be negative to them. They wouldn't be losing money. You still actually, in fact, probably get more better qualified people. But we're so stuck in the kind of in our heads about how we do things and the structure and mm. the nature of how we go forward with things, how we should be educated, how we need to apply for a job and get your suit and tie and sit there with this resume and it's one page and I don't care how many jobs you've had. You know how hard it is for me to get my jobs <laughs> on one page? I hate where <laughs> <I can imagine. laughs> yeah. it's, it's difficult to explain and convey on paper, which somebody's going to glance at for 20 seconds what your worth is. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating, but at the same time, it's something that's changeable because it has yeah. changed. It went from one thing to this thing and now it can go to something else. Talking about applying for jobs, what was the moment for you that made you decide? Congress. Congress. Uh, you know, I thought about it. I love politics. I've always loved politics. I follow it. I've been an activist for most of my life. I've marched in DC when college because I think that's a requirement. I think it was a class <laughs> I took in the undergrad, but I've also volunteered for different organizations along the way. I was a volunteer attorney for Hillary Clinton for her campaign. And then the day of the election last year came and I went to go vote. And when I went to go vote and I looked and I saw who was running for Congress, which was Richard Reichart, I remember thinking to myself, this is somebody who I barely was exposed to him at all. There was no support from the Democratic Party locally to get him out, to get the word of him out, to get any type of advertising. And I remember thinking that cyclically every two years, there's somebody runs that doesn't have support at all. They're running seriously, but they're not taken seriously. And it seems like every two years, somebody was a sacrificial lamb that went up. It's your turn. (laughs) I care about this place. I'm from here. My family's here. 120 years ago, my great-grandfather was campaigning for the borough president of Staten Island. Mm. Um, And they were involved in democratic politics, attended the state conventions in 1896, and were part of the early political history of the island. And I knew that I had the background that I had. This is really just kind of an extension of everything else that I've done. Yeah. And I'm fairly sure that I'm qualified (laughs) when it comes on paper. The other qualification, of course, comes and says, you know, okay, well, what are your ideas? How well can you convey them? How well can you build an organization? There's all the other things that come with running. But the real like, this is it moment was when I was actually voting. And I said, you know, I'm in. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) You voted for yourself that day. And then the night came and then the night's been with us for the year. 
Something you said was really interesting to me, this idea that maybe the Democratic Party on Staten Island needs to take a more active role in helping promote the ideas of everybody who's running. And maybe that's something they're not used to because they haven't had a primary in many, many years now. They also have to promote the idea of what a Democrat is. Mm. And between elections, we don't hear from the Democrats at all. There is a discussion going on about what actually makes us Democrats and me as a Democrat. And I think that we did lose our way. At least the national leaders have lost their way in a big way when it came to big money, when it came to Mm -hmm. how they treated African-American community, how they marginalized communities, how they treated unions, how they treated basically everybody they relied on and once really stood up for. It's two things. It's one is defining and saying, hey, first of all, Democrats are here in Staten Island. It's not a small group of people. It's a large group of people. But they're not as well organized as they could be because we haven't had an organization underneath that's been building any type of mm. bench or building any kind of real support structure. One of the things I find frustrating is that a lot of the things that I hear when I was uh, knocking doors for Dylan Schwartz in the South Shore, they care about union issues, economic issues, things that yeah. they would benefit from, uh, frankly, national democratic politics, but specifically the things that me and other Democrats have been advocating for. We're on their side. A lot of the times they're getting pulled back because of either character politics of who they prefer and had a beer with, or it's social issues. Hmm. It's kind of funny, though, because most of the issues, absolutely, they would benefit from democratic policies. And at the very least, they'd benefit from a conversation. Mm -hmm. Given my history, people don't slam doors in my face as much as you would suspect. Mm. Because I am a retired police officer, I'm a 9-11 first responder, I'm a union guy, I can have a conversation. Uh, it does afford me an in to at least start to discuss some of these issues in a way that I think some other people might have a problem and start waking them up. And I, I do see a response to that. Oh, it's interesting that you say that about people losing on character issues or, or social issues, because it's not as if the other party has the economic solutions. No, it, really character. It, and somehow that gets turned back around on Democrats as if we're doing something well, wrong. If, if you see where <laughs> how we came to where we were, we had Fasella who was there for a while after the Molinari dynasty, after he got picked up from jail with his second family and he was out. We had Grimm, who had 20 felony indictments and went Mm -hmm. to prison for tax fraud. Donovan was the safe choice. Right. Talk about a low bar that you can trip over. He sits in the back bench. He's happy to be there. He talks a lot. He brings a lot of people in his office. I hear people go there all the time and says, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that, and he doesn't. Yeah. The only two bills he voted against that everybody is bringing him sheet cakes and balloons for (laughs) – Which irritated me because both of them raised taxes directly on his constituents. He's not an idiot. He's not going to vote on something, knowing it'll pass, that is going to directly negatively affect his constituents. And so he comes out looking like some kind of hero. But look, he's the kind of guy who, if you hired him at a company and he didn't show up for the first three months, and then you gave him an assignment and he's like, oh yeah, I'll do it. And then he walks out the door. And then three months later, he turns in one assignment. I'm not going to give him a bonus and a sheet cake. While he seems like the safe choice, nothing is safe. Our healthcare is not safe. Our education is not safe. Our transportation money, where is it? We had McMahon in there for two years. He brought in more transportation money than Grimm or Donovan yeah. combined. Mm-hmm. There are government grants available. There's transportation earmarks you can put in there. He's done nothing. There seems to be a mentality that Republicans put on the island that the island's under siege. You need to elect a Republican to keep out something worse But at the same time, I don't see anything that the Republicans that are being elected are doing constructively for the island other than just putting it into siege mode. I run into people don't know there's an election. And that's fine. But then I very slowly try to say, well, you know, hey, I'm in slam. There's a really interesting quote going around about that the other day. And it was like, you say you don't care about politics, but your landlord cares about politics and your boss cares about politics and the people selling you things care about politics. You can't remove yourself from politics. 
Yeah. Now that's why, well, I don't know if Grimm knows what he wants to do for a living when he grows up, but <laughs> he got back into this. I don't know why. I mean, I would say it's it's just pure ego and hubris, but who knows? Mm-hmm. I would laugh, but it's not funny. None of this yeah. is funny. And in the end, should he ever get elected back into Congress, the first thing they're going to do is open up a federal ethics investigation. Mm. Yeah. He is somebody that nobody wants to deal with. You want your congressperson to go down and be able to allocate money for you and to make deals and to negotiate and have a seat at the table. And that's not him. He is He's not going to get back in in any meaningful way and represent this district in a way that is going to be beneficial to anybody. The Donovan, because of this is, well, first of all, he's come out of that phone booth he's been hiding in for... <laughs> That's why he's out. Not because he feels threatened because there's six Democrats or seven or a hundred of us who are out there gunning for his job, but because Grimm is out there. And if Grimm sees more than three people standing in a corner, he's going to run and talk to them. So he is out there trying to have these coffee clutches. This, my understanding is that they didn't go so well. Um, Yeah, I think. think, Define well. For whom did they go well? (laughs) For for the very sad person sitting on the stool. And I was at the one in, in Port Richmond High School. It was quite a show there. And he was really put on the spot. Specifically, I know that when I was with the Make the Road people, they wanted to know about the DREAM Act Mm -hmm. and his prior commitment that he had given to people that says, oh, I'll pass a clean DREAM Act. And he just said, no, it's got to have a border wall with it. He said it. He finally would not admit to it. And meanwhile, it's, I won't lie to you. I'll never lie to you. Oh, yeah. And I'm not seeing a single Staten Island-centric issue. That's a good point. That's a good point. They're not addressing. And that's kind of the whole problem is that we're not doing things for the district. Mm -hmm. Certainly not for Brooklyn, let alone for Staten Island. Yes, there are federal issues you have to vote on. There are international issues you have to vote on. Some of those can have direct repercussions. Some seem to be a little bit more removed, but it's part of the job. But then, no, even Fasella allocated money for the 86th Street Station, you know, federal money to actually fix that. for the renovations. Things things that, let's say, you don't have direct legislative power over, something that's out of your purview. You have a microphone. Use it. Wait, what? what? I thought you could only do things if something was in your committee on your desk being voted on that week. (gasps) I've been misled. Get out in the community and start talking about these things. That's that's part of the job. And if you can't do that, it's a two-year job, man. It's not that long. You should be doing that job as if you don't expect to get rehired. Mm. Yeah. And you have to be able to take that kind of criticism. Like It's not about Grimm's violent reaction to the journalist, but the fact that he couldn't take a question. You couldn't take a single question without flipping out. Donovan can't take a single question from a constituent without being like, no, 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 let's please do this in my office. The Donovan office uh, switch is one of the biggest things I've seen him do because he loves to sit at the end of that long table Mm. with the seal of Congress above his head because that is a home court advantage. That is not a space where you're having an equal arm's length conversation with a constituent. That is me as some type of boss that you are coming and supplicating to. And it's crap. Mm -hmm. I hate that. I don't work for him, and neither do you, and neither does anybody else. He works for us. Yeah, you have to have office hours, and you have to do that. But town halls are also important. You should be out there, period, and ready and willing to talk to any constituent. And you shouldn't assume every constituent got bust out of somewhere else. One of the things that I remember bringing up when I met with him in August was that as a constituent, it would be really useful for me to see how he reacts to his constituents en masse. And you can tell a lot about somebody by how they handle a crowd. I appreciate for whatever reason that he decided to hold those Mm -hmm. coffee events because it gave us the opportunity to see how he handles us Mm -hmm. in a crowd. And I know that at the Port Richmond one, keep bringing up Alan today, like, um, had stood up and let him know, like, we're organizing, we're communicating, we're learning, and we're coming for your seat. I regrettably didn't stay for the whole thing. I was marching out with uh, Make the Road there. How did you get involved with Make the Road? I do a lot of work and do a lot of activism with La Comena, which Mm. is an organization in Staten Island. And with Cesar Vargas, Dream Action Coalition. 
And uh, this was something that was kind of a joint thing between La Comena and Make the Road. Recently, it has to do a lot with uh, with DACA and the Dream Act and everything like that. So I make sure that I'm also at a lot of the uh, Right to Know workshops that they mm. hold. It's been, it's been focused so much on the Latino community, but these issues actually do bleed over into any other community because they're undocumented immigrants of almost every different kind here. And it goes two ways. It's the one that Trump and Republicans have pointed to and said, these guys over here, and so we're going to rise up. But it absolutely is something that's relevant for the entire district. Actually, you mentioned something there that I would really like to get your take on because I don't think we've had anybody else who's been active in the police. But what's your feeling on the right to know, especially because you've got mm-hmm. that background and kind of put you in a unique place to talk about it? I spent many, many years in Spanish Harlem walking a beat. And that is a community that has a lot of undocumented immigrants as well as just an immigrant community in general. Anytime you meet with anybody for any reason, if they call you for help or if you meet them on the street, if you're just chit-chatting, uh, any contact you have is genuinely important because a lot of the times that's that person's first and only contact with police as well. As an officer, I spoke with just hundreds of people all the time. But sometimes when you stop somebody, that's the first time they've ever encountered police because that has to do with a lot of about police interaction and how you start every conversation. Yeah. I will never second guess an officer who feels his life is in danger. I have seen it and I am not going to say, oh, this should be in place before you take your weapon out of your holster. No, there's a whole different set of circumstances that I understand as an officer. At the same time, when it comes to interaction, if I'm stopping somebody, I was basically already doing the thing that they're talking about. I was letting them know why I was stopping them to the limit that I could, because I also don't want to compromise investigations. And there's a multitude of reasons why a police officer may stop somebody. And not all of them is something that you can reveal to the person that you're Mm -hmm. stopping. In most circumstances, if it's a matching description, if you get a radio run, yeah, uh, I found it personally beneficial to tell the person why I was stopping them. Saying, look, you know, you match the description, radio, you tell me, have them repeat the description, it matches them. Give me a second, let me check your ID, you're good, goodbye. But there are a lot of circumstances where that's not going to really be viable. And so I don't really support something where in every circumstance I stop somebody, I have to let them know certain information. Yeah. I am required by law anyway to give them my name, to give them my badge. And I've never had an issue with that as well. And I think they have a right to know who's policing you. And if you're being stopped, you have a right to know who's writing your reports. Yeah. And I have an issue because there are other very specific police regulations. That's not me mm-hmm. saying, oh, I got information you don't understand. Related yeah. specifically to the job of investigation and policing, that really doesn't allow for it to be across the board. I know that is kind of a loaded question, so yeah. I appreciate your giving sure. a thoughtful answer. Like that. Well, one of the things that's really relevant to our district is the interaction between the police and the community. That has to do with our daily interaction, has to do with specific communities, communities of color, socioeconomic issues. And I know one of the things the police is trying to do is I think they need to do better, really build into their training in academy, Mm. how they interact, make that a larger part of the actual original police training, how they interact Mm. and how they communicate. They have a new uh, community officer program, the NCO units that have been out. It's a modification, I think, of some of the other types of community policing programs, and I support those 100%. Having dedicated officers who are off the radio, not taking jobs but who are working in the community, they kind of float around going to the schools, going to the different areas and trying to handle some of the longer term, non-urgent needs that the community has to try to address them. If you've got a park that has that is continuously being occupied by homeless, it's a multi-agency response that you also need to have them connect with other agencies to fix. It's not something where I show up, I write a report and everything's done because almost nothing is like that. There has been a certain negativity towards all police. That hurts morale. And when I was working in the legal bureau, I worked uh, on a program that actually took me citywide. And so I've been in all the different boroughs. I really did go to a lot of different precincts. And these men and women work hard. And they are, at their core, dedicated to any large organization. Yeah, you've got some problems. Uh, and you need to root out those problems. And it's sometimes the problem is the person. Sometimes the problem is training. This is something to look at. So part of it's data collection, part of it's metric analysis, and that sounds boring. But part of it is just really 
getting out there into nuts and bolts of the daily interaction that patrol officers have with people on a daily basis. When I start building partnerships in the community, uh, as well as having partners in the car with me, it made all of our lives easier. When I was in the academy, we were taught, uh, I forget, it was a very short course, but of, of how to basically de-escalate. We need to expand our de-escalation into an actual embedded curriculum in our academy and really do a lot of, get that muscle motor memory going with that type of talk so that you're used to that. So that's your goal. That's your end approach. And I have to put a caveat in there every time because I know probably police are listening as well, mm -hmm. that when it comes to the force continuum as to where you access what level of force, I will never tell a cop where to start. And you really can't put that into any training and say, well, you should always just start with your voice. And then if it gets higher, then you move on to, no, there, you can access that force continuum at any different point at a time where either you feel threatened or you see somebody else being threatened as well. But when it comes to a majority of the interactions that we have, uh, yeah, we can do better in both training. And as I said, that comes with our normal interactions. And specifically, one of the things that I've been a big proponent of is interaction with the disabled community. Mm -hmm. And there's two different forms of that. There's physical disabilities and how we interact and treat people with physical disabilities as a society. Because somebody in a wheelchair usually either gets ignored or talked down to more than a person who is standing at eye level. So it's a question of respect. And then the other part is dealing with what they call EDPs, the emotionally disturbed persons, when you respond to these types of calls. And that's a very common call that you're going to have. Why they are acting the way they are acting, honestly, it's individual. It depends on what it is they're doing. In the forefront of that, safety comes first. But we absolutely do not have effective training enough to recognize when somebody is a medical problem as opposed to a criminal or law enforcement problem. If nobody's in any immediate danger, time is our friend. What's yeah. the rush? Time and space are the best friends that we absolutely have. Everybody slow down and figure out what really is the problem. And I know that there is a rush to get radio cars out and there's a rush to get from one job to the next. But these calls then, you have to recognize the priority of them as being higher than typically allocated. Like mm -hmm. if it's, oh, it's just an EDP. It's not just an EDP. Yeah. Um, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate of better police training embedded into the police academy curriculum so that it's actually part of their original training, part of their muscle motor memory. They build from the beginning some type of a better communication system that they can both interact with, de-escalate better with, and have an awareness. It doesn't mean they're all going to come out and be Dr. Phil experts when they come out to the EDPs, but they're going to have an awareness that says, at the very least, this is a medical problem. So I'm not going to put yeah. cuffs on this guy right now. I'm going to back up for a second. And I'm going to consult and make sure maybe I can talk. Maybe I can find out. Does he have a metal bracelet on? Does there some information of where he came from? Can I get more information? Information's our friend too. Um, and that ties right back to, you know, we don't have that floor for people. Yeah. And we don't. And again, we don't recognize that when you cut these services, the people don't disappear. Yeah. They go somewhere and somebody somewhere has to handle the end result of that. Recently, they were trying to cut HUD. They were changing the formula so that it was a smaller percentage and it came out of gross, not net or the other way. But the, the bottom line is, is that it was going to take about $100 away a month from some people. And that was the difference between eating or being homeless. Yeah. It is cheaper to give somebody a housing subsidy than to have somebody who was homeless, all right? It is cheaper to take care of somebody in a special ed setting than to put that person at home and not educate them, be on the street, and not have them be a productive member. When we talk about all of our, quote unquote, liberal policies, and we just want to give all of our money away to everybody, no. The money that is spent on education, on helping some of these people with that floor, on housing, so they're food secure, so these kids aren't growing up with that, and ensuring that everybody has an, an equal education and opportunity this makes better citizens. This makes better taxpaying citizens. This actually helps all of us, not just feel good, but it helps our economy as well. It helps our city. It makes it safer. It makes, there's a lot of benefits to this that aren't just, mm -hmm. you know, I'm helping somebody and somehow that's charity. 
because it's not. Yeah. I am getting a tangible benefit in return from having this person be productive and be uh, taken care of. And that's one of the biggest ones is healthcare because that's a right, not a privilege to have actual care, not access to it. Because when you do have preventative medicine, then your asthma is no longer going to be an acute illness that you're now getting emergency treatment for, which costs more, mm-hmm. or your kidneys or any other problem that is preventable, your diabetes. But then specifically, yes, with unions, with jobs, with all of us being able to actually free up the money for us to be able to just live. Take that money and put it back into the economy in other ways. I am for single payer. It's a little bit different than, I, than the Medicare for all. I know that that's something that's been floating around about mm-hmm. how that's going to be paid for. I'm an advocate for a single payer that gets taken out of a payroll tax. That is where I'd like to see it come from, but then be issued a card by which the, in the end, you would not have any co-pays deductibles. And it's the payer. It's not a government-run system. There's still private physicians. It's just that you're changing the route of how it's being paid. All the analysis that I've seen of that type of a system that comes out of a payroll would lessen the overall cost of healthcare in this country by 25%, which is enormous. So the amount that you would have to pay into your payroll taxes actually wouldn't be something. First of all, we're already paying. Yeah. You're going to be paying less if you pay into a payroll tax and the overall cost goes down, not Mm -hmm. bending the cost curve like with Obamacare, which it did. Prices still went up, but it went up not as quickly as it could have. No, the prices will go down. It's the model that I prefer only because it has a definite way of paying for it. And again, you have to kind of get out of your mental mindset of, I don't want to pay for that person's health care. Well, you're paying for it anyway. Guys going to the emergency room, you're paying for it. Get it out of your head, right? That's it. So while we're already paying for it, let's organize how we're doing it and pay cheaper and do it better. Universal health coverage is a rite of passage for all the Democratic candidates. Uh, and we have to all say that. But I genuinely believe this. I've worked in healthcare for eight years and I saw I had to have patients sign their, I'm going to pay this bill in the back of an ambulance uh-huh. on the way to a hospital. That's the last thing you want to do while you're on your way to the hospital yeah. after your car accident is sign this that says, well, I'm going to be responsible for this payment. So now you're lying there wondering how you're going to pay for the ambulance, which I guarantee your insurance does not cover. How do I know this? Because when I was injured as a paramedic, and crawled into the back of my own ambulance (laughs) and was transported to the hospital. And then I had to go get an MRI because I hurt my back on a job lifting a patient. My own ambulance drove me across the street to the MRI and back. And I got a whopping bill in the mail because my health insurance coverage didn't cover ambulance bills. So when you alleviate that and you remove that anxiety, that potential for bankruptcy, it frees up money. It frees up uh, innovation. It frees up people to say, okay, I'm going to go start this business now because I don't need to be tied to a workplace health insurance program somewhere. Terrific. I want single payer care, but what's going to happen next year? There are things we can do now to lower the cost. We're having problems with Obamacare. Most of it's sabotage. One of the biggest complaints is that there's a middle path if you're like 40, 45,000 or more a year that you're not receiving the subsidy. So part of it is increasing the threshold for subsidies. That's what you could do immediately to start alleviating so that more people can retain the care that they have. The other part is actually advertising that there is still an ACA. But actually, I know counterintuitively, the rates have actually increased this year from last year as people really want it because they probably feel it's not going to be there anymore. And so one of the things that I'm proposing to do more immediately is start handling pharmaceutical costs. That's a huge industry. And I mean, say, oh, you're not going to do anything about it. But this is something where you have massive public support if they understand why a lot of our healthcare is as pricey as it is. Because if you have a respiratory illness and you go to the doctor, what, twice a year, right? Mm-hmm. Asthma or whatever, COPD. And you go, your doctor visits about $150, $300 for the year. That didn't drive the cost of your insurance up. But you have two inhalers, an emergent and a chronic, a daily inhaler. Per month, the unit cost of these is about $300 a month for each. If you have two, if you have three, so now you're at maybe between six and $900 per month. Multiply that by 12. Everybody's like, well, I don't understand because when I go and I have my insurance, I bring my pharmacy card to Dwayne Reed and five bucks copay later, I have my meds. So what's the problem? 
The problem is the pharmacy benefit managers who control which drugs are available and how much your specific insurance gets reimbursed. There's only a few national ones. It's a total... And one just got market. merged together, yep. right? Yep, uh, and CBS. Pharmacy benefit manager system started as an accounting system back in the 80s, hmm. and it turned into this completely non-transparent monopoly, the prices for drugs and where they are sent and who has the generic and who doesn't and who has only the name brand and who doesn't and what price your company gets reimbursed. That's what emerged out of that. And you can do multiple things with the PBMs. You can change to make it more transparent. You can make it so New York City can form its own PBM. Like Medicare Part D, in the legislation, it forbids the government from negotiating drug prices with the pharmaceutical yeah. company. It's actually written into there. Yeah. But the VA can. The VA is a government institution that can negotiate the price of medication. So that drug cost that I was talking about, you paid $5 for that. Depending on which bin you got placed in from your pharmacy benefit manager, which insurance you have, that can be reimbursed to the company as little as 50 bucks or as much as 200 out of the 300. Mm -hmm. That's what's driving your actual premiums up because you're paying for that in the end. You paid $5 for the prescription, but whatever you did not get reimbursed for, it went back to Aetna, went back to Cigna or whomever. Yeah. Um, so it's a classic middleman taking... Yeah, then there's this little gobbledygook thing here, um, this Heisenberg uncertainty where we don't know what the price is or how they even determine the price because none of that's transparent. None yeah. of it's required to be transparent. So you can either legislate required transparency. You can have the government take over the PBM. I know people don't like government takeovers, but you can do something where it's just a more transparent system where the cost is more equalized and that you don't have it concentrated when it's only mm -hmm. three or four in the entire country. And while that's not the sole driver, it's a huge amount of expense that makes a lot of it. And this is something you talk about betting a cost curve. This will really flatten it out. So thank you so much, Mike, for coming in and talking with us. This has been really great. I'm glad we got to dig into stuff like this. That Absolutely. Yeah, no, it was, it was really good getting to talk about it. A wide variety of topics. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again, Mike, for taking the time to talk to us. If you like what you heard, check out Mike's website at MikeDeCillis.com. That's Mike, D-E-C-I-L-L-I-S. Or follow him on Facebook or on Twitter at Mike underscore DeSillis. We'll also be fleshing all of that out in the show notes soon. And a reminder to all of our listeners, every NY11 candidate will be needing volunteers and petition signers next month in March. So if there's a candidate you'd like to help out, now's the time to reach out. Our next episode will be a special lecture we recorded last week at Poly Prep. And our interview with congressional contender Zach Emig is coming up this weekend. Until then, stay free, Bay Ridge. <laughs>